All right, you guys. If you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's good to see you all this morning. Welcome, welcome. I'm glad you're here. If you remember, we left off last week with Jesus teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And he's teaching with authority, which puts him in conflict with the scribes. And he's confronted by this unclean spirit. He muzzles them, casts them out. And it sort of reveals this problem, which is that there's an unclean spirit that's taking up residence in the synagogue. And none of the people in the synagogue realize it. They, they're blind to it. And sort of symbolically, he's saying that the whole Jewish um, social structure of the time had become possessed by an unclean spirit, was working you might say, against the purposes uh, of God. And we talked about how, of course, you know, we all have trouble seeing the spirits that possess our lives and our culture. And um, the religious word for this is actually sin. When I say the, sin, the word sin, you probably think of like sin as like a personal thing, like willful transgressions of a known good. Like when we know something's wrong and we do it in any way. But Jesus tends to focus on the social dimension of sin, often. When sin becomes embedded in our social systems, and the system itself transgresses the good, or, or forces people to transgress the good. And this is what gets most of Christ's attention. And I think the reason for this is that when sin gets ahead of steam in our systems of like government, economics, justice, any, anything like that, it impacts everyone and everything that participates in that system. So social sin is actually much more powerful, usually, than personal sin. Because it impacts everything that, that plays in that system. Plus, it's much harder to see. You know, the systems of the world, they end up being just like the water that we swim in. And we're sort of oblivious to the way that they determine our lives. And systemic evil, it can make good people do bad things without even really realizing it. They're just following the laws and norms and social customs. And they're almost always, social sins are almost always the most destructive. The big, they have huge body counts. I'm talking wars, corruption, racism, systemic injustice, poverty, and, and they're hard to address. They're hard to see and they're hard to get whole systems to repent and change, especially when one of kind of, you might say, the unclean spirits that possesses our day is the spirit of radical individualism, which is sort of blinds us to those kind of systemic issues. So in many ways, the social manifestation of sin is Christ's primary concern. And his actions are, and teachings are, are always directly focused at social sinfulness and um, a little more than personal sin, sinfulness. So, so when he confronts this unclean spirit in the synagogue in Capernaum, it's not just really about this one guy and his personal spiritual struggle. It's it's a powerful symbolic action aimed at their social systems. He's just revealing the whole Jewish social structure symbolized by synagogue has become possessed by an unclean spirit, by social sin. And um, his mission is to muzzle it, cast it out, and set people free to, to go pursue the world that God imagines for them. Which sort of brings up the question, what is the world God imagines for us? Um, 
And in the Hebrew imagination, it's, it can be summed up really by this one word that we talk about a lot, the word shalom or peace, which just means everything that exists in its rightful place, doing what it's intended to do, relating rightly to everything else that exists, thereby all of it flourishing and finding wholeness. And the pursuit of shalom is at the heart of everything, every part of the story of God. And all through scripture, God is leading the people of God to build human communities that embody shalom in the world by partnering with God in the way they organize their common life and through this faithful relationship to the reality and presence of God in the world. They can find peace and they can become human as human was intended to be and then And then fulfill their their vocation, which is to image God, to bear God's image as God's image-bearing creatures. Does that make sense? Are you with me? It's it's important to to think in terms of peace and in terms of these kind of systemic things. Because if we don't, we'll we'll really miss and and probably maybe misapprehend and and, um, then miss or, I guess, kind of get lost and trying to understand what Jesus is doing and trying to follow him. So Jesus is trying always to restore peace to the people of God and to God's good creation so that the people can carry God's image to the world. Be human as we're meant to be. You think of the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness camped around the tabernacle. Remember the story of Balak? who hired the prophet Balaam to come curse the people of God so he could attack them. And they climbed this mountain up together and they looked down on the Israelite camp. Remember what they saw in that moment? What they saw looked like the fruitful land of Eden in the middle of the desert. Like priests and Levites tending and keeping this mobile garden of Eden at the center of their camp and the tabernacle with its smoke billowing like a traveling tree of life. They, what they saw was this mobile Eden people, like miraculously flourishing in the middle of the desert. That's, that's all God has ever been after. With the children of Israel, with, with the Christian church, is communities of people who bear the image of God and embody shalom in the way they organize the world so that anybody who encounters them, anybody who sees them, is, can marvel at God's work among the people at the peace they embody. So in Capernaum, way up on the northern edge of the land of Israel, surrounded by the Roman Empire, by the way, and on that Via Maris, that that really active trade route, their job is to embody shalom in that place, peacefulness, wholeness, flourishing, and to extend this to all they encounter. But something has gone wrong. There's no peace. There's no peace in the synagogue, which is like the symbol of Jewish social life. And and it's led by the scribes. And there's this unclean spirit possessing not just this man, but this whole place. And instead of driving the man out to the edge of the community, which is the normal custom, Jesus drives out the unclean spirit and restores the man and this place, the synagogue, to peace. And then at some point, the service breaks up. They all head home. Jesus went straight to Peter's house. He lived there, too. Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. James and John were still with them. And remember, in the Gospels, 
Um, there's Jesus' teaching, but then there's his actions. His actions are always teachings. So when he moves from the synagogue to a private home, that's a teaching. So he's moving from um, public space, you might say, to personal space. And he's going to show here that like, what's happening in the synagogue is happening also in this, this home. It's impacting persons in their day-to-day spaces. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told him about her at once. And he came and took her by the hand and raised her up. Then the fever came out of her, and she began to serve them. So the problem that's in the synagogue is leaking out now into the village. It's in Peter's house. It's in um, his mother-in-law's body. And Jesus, we're told, um, moves against it. So he says he takes her by the hand, and a gyrian altien, it just means raise her up. The reason that's important is it's the same exact phrase used later in Mark when talking about Jesus' resurrection. He's raised up. So this is like a tiny little resurrection happening. He's signaling what he's, what he's all about. And then it says, the fever came out of her, which sounds like uh, an exorcism, like a spirit coming out of her. And, and they actually have a, a, a normal Greek word. It's etherapusin. It's, it means therapy. You can hear therapy in there. That's their normal word for, for healing, but that's not the word they, they use. Mark uses this, this phrase, it, the fever came out of her, just like the unclean spirit came out of the man in the, in the synagogue. So this fever and the spirit in the man in the, the synagogue, they're, they're part of the same problem. Does that make sense? And it's in public space, and it's in personal space, and in people's bodies. And so Jesus raises her up. The fever came out of her. And then it says she began to serve, which, if you read it in English, sounds like Jesus healed her so she could go make a sandwich or something, right? Like for all the guys. But it, that's not what it says. The, the word there is diakonei. It's where we get the word deacon. She started deaconing. It means ministry. So, so he is, he's healed her or that brought this fever out of her so she can take part in the mission of God. He restores her. It's, it's, it's not a um, servile word. Um, Deluo de is the word they would use if she was going to be a servant. It's actually the same word used in the, in the um, verse you might recognize. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. It's that deacon word. So Jesus has cast out this fever and raised her up, and now she can participate in the people of God, so she can find, find peace and, and do ministry um, in her community. Then we're told, that evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So this all takes place at, at, at sunset. And all the people gather around the door. Why, why sunset? Well, if you remember, he was, he was in synagogue on the Sabbath. So sunset is the end of the Sabbath day. So people are free to, to move about. And so they come out again. And apparently there's a ton of people sick and possessed by 
demons. In fact, there's so many, it says the whole city was gathered around the door. So Mark's kind of engaging in some hyperbole. He's telling us this, this unclean spirit from the synagogue that was also in Peter's house, hanging over his mother-in-law. It's, it's kind of all over town and maybe all over the region. And so Jesus is kind of drawing to the surface this social sin that's embedded in their systems. It's making everybody sick. Everybody's symptomatic. Both the, the Jewish system, um, like we saw last week, but also the, the systems of Rome and empire. I mean, think about Rome. Part of the Roman Empire, kind of how they imposed themselves on the world was they promised to provide peace. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they prided themselves on, they would show up and you're like, oh no, the Romans are here. And they're like, calm down. We're going to give you all kinds of good stuff. So they built sanitation and roads and aqueducts, aqueducts for clean water and waste removal. They had prefects and law and order. They, Rome kept the peace. Like good governance was their calling card. And, and, and so they were supposed to have the healthiest populations of any society in the world. So why is there so much sickness and so many unclean spirits? Here in Capernaum, where, where Rome is calling the shots. So it's not just the, the synagogue and not just people's homes. It's, it's not just Jewish social systems. There's problems in the system of empire as well. And of course, we, I mean, we talk about this, that the peace of empire is an illusion. Um, all they do is you know, push all the suffering and violence and war and injustice to the edges of the realm, like places like Galilee. And then they call the center peace. By the way, same thing we do in the suburbs. We push all the poverty and crime and violence and injustice to other parts of the city, and we call the suburbs peace. It's an empire move. So if the, if the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was extended to Capernaum, why is the whole city gathered around Peter's door the second they can come out after Sabbath, trying to be healed by Jesus? And the implication is... The systems that they live under are broken, and it's making everybody symptomatic. The Roman system just exploits places like Galilee. The Jewish system is pushing strugglers outside the camp as soon as they show up having a problem. And Christ's mission seems to be to cast out these spirits that destroy Shalom. And this is actually, I think, a really important paradigm for understanding Jesus's miracles. And like, I, I grew up Southern Baptist kid, so we were basically taught that his miracles were proof that he was God. Anybody grow up thinking that? That's really their chief function. They, these are proof that this dude is not like other dudes. And, and he'll, or, or that these are personal things and what what he'll do for them, like he'll cast out the evil spirits that, that invade our lives or whatever. And, and that, of course, is part of it. But the primary meaning of his miracles, it wasn't um, practical, maybe not even personal. It was symbolic. He's teaching and enacting in concrete ways what it looks like to be at peace, to be part of the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, the place place where whatever God wants to happen actually happens. The best example I can think of of how this works is it's like during the civil rights movement 
Um, one of the ways that they would protest segregation was to have protesters go sit at the whites-only lunch counters. And the reason they did this is not because they were dying of starvation. You know, there are plenty of other places they could go to get food. This was a symbolic action. Right? They were after way more than just a hot meal. By sitting at the whites-only counter, they were saying, this is how the world should be organized. It was symbolic. They, would, they were saying, this, we should be able to eat together, people of color and all different races, without you know, hurting each other. They were symbolically enacting what a community of peace looks like and this alternative vision of the world that we call the kingdom of God. And by doing this, they're calling into question the systems, the broken systems of the world. And it's like this with Jesus. When he heals a sick person or casts out some unclean spirit, it's not primarily about healing that one person. He's saying, this is how the world should be. So that everyone can find wholeness and flourishing. He's symbolically enacting what a community of peace should look like. And this is part of why the language in Mark is so strange. He's casting out fevers like unclean spirits. Mark's saying the, these healings aren't just like random personal issues. He's, it's, this is a symbolic action about the community at large and the spirit that they embody. And he's saying this is what the kingdom looks like. This is the world God imagines for us. And his actions were also calling them into question, saying the way you've organized is not right. It's way too much like the empires of the world. You're pushing all the problems to the edge of the community. And it, this was even kind of codified in Jewish law and custom. Anything they came in contact with that, that was symbolized the power of sin and death had to be driven outside the camp. And so anybody with problems was like, they were chucked out outside until they could figure it out pushed to the periphery so they could call the centerpiece. And what seems to have happened, this is kind of Christian, Orthodox Christian theology, is that there actually was a time when this is necessary, when Israel was sort of young, in its adolescence a bit. God was teaching them um, the things that make for life and the things that make for death and anything associated with death or chaos or barrenness had to be kept at a distance. And that's why all that stuff is in the Jewish law in the first place. But Jesus is revealing now it's, it's not how they're supposed to organize for all of time and all of space. This, this was a specific teaching for a specific stage in their development. It's like when your kids are in high school and they're starting to really feel their freedom, you know? But they, they also, then you have to institute a bunch of rules to govern that freedom, like curfews and, and check-ins, stuff like that. Um, and it's just, some of those rules didn't even exist until they got a little bit of freedom, but then you gotta kind of teach them how to steward it. Pretty soon they'll be out on their own, and, and keeping rules or the letter of the law sort of goes away because they're entering this new stage of development when they have to learn to govern themselves, right? To learn some kind of wisdom that's not rooted in just keeping the rules or fear of punishment. It's rooted in a desire for shalom, for a good life of peace. And this is similar to what is happening in the ministry of Christ. These healings and exorcisms, 
Jesus is signaling, we're, we're entering a whole new stage of life as the people of God here. And keeping curfew and, and rigid rule keeping and pushing all the problems to the margins, that, that was an earlier stage in the, their development. It's time to grow up now and stop obsessing over the laws and the rules. Because that whole system they had created around keeping rules, it was just trucking people over and destroying people's lives and shoving them outside the community, the, the, especially the most vulnerable ones. And so in these symbolic actions, I think Jesus is, is telling them, it's time to grow up. you got to get a more mature vision of shalom. You're going to find shalom not by pushing people to the edge, but by drawing them near and finding a way to, to heal them up, to restore struggling people to full participation in the people of God. And so I, it's really important when we're looking at Christ's miracles to not see them as just random acts to help individual people, but as these big symbolic teachings about the world God imagines for us. If we see them too individualistically, we'll, we'll kind of fall into this trap of thinking that the whole point of Jesus' ministry is just to magically fix things, you know? And that's actually a, runs counter to what he was actually trying to do, I think. It's part of why he doesn't permit the, the demons or the spirits to, um, that he's casting out to, to name him, to define him. He, sh- he shuts them up because... Remember, we talked about last week, it's the spirit of the scribes. It's the spirit of the age that has possessed these people. And he's trying to change their whole imagination for what the people of God should be, what, for what Messiah is. And those, those unclean spirits have their own imagination. And they don't want to change and grow. They don't want to let go of their old customs. I mean, look at, look at the lunch counter sit-ins pictures. Look, look at the folks in the background. Like... How much do these guys want to change in that moment? I mean, you just see it on their faces. This is the kind of resistance Jesus faced. I mean, he was, would they have opposed Jesus if he was just healing their friends? He was way more than that. He was calling their way of life into question. They looked at him like this. They eventually run him out of Capernaum. We have to read these actions is symbolic actions that embody this whole new way of life and Jesus loves his people he's trying to push them to take responsibility for the shalom of the entire community and even the world not just their little group and so his actions are like sitting at the lunch counter man they are they are he's meaning to provoke this community and shake them awake to help them find a new imagination for the world. And he's pointing straight to the people that their rules and their kind of customs leave out. But he's not going to um, over-function for them. I mean, his ministry is an exception to the rule. It's just this few short years where God is present in a particular way and the normative way God works over the scope of history, and especially in the scriptures, is God works through the people of God who follow, um, follow the Spirit of God, follow Christ in the power of the Spirit in laying down their lives. So, so you could say it this way. 
God doesn't promise to fix the world for us. God is trying to fix the world through us and with us. It's why after the resurrection, he doesn't let Mary cling to him. Remember that weird thing? It's like, don't, don't, I'm not going to overfunction for you. It's why he disappears at the table in Emmaus after they recognize him. He's like, don't cling to me. Don't try to get me to overfunction. He, he's trying to compel and empower them to live as he lived, to, to make their life like his life, to be filled with the Spirit and become his hands and feet. And this is, this is what it means to be a Christian. I mean, this is us, too. We're supposed to organize our common life in such a way that when people look at us, they see the shalom of God. And part of what he's saying is this can't happen if you just keep pushing all the brokenness to the edges. Um, if you want to banish sin, this is a problem, because what about the sin in me, you know? Like, the problem is in each of us and in the very systems we've built and participate in. It also won't happen if we just sit on our hands and, and pray for a miracle. Ultimately, what Jesus says is, you do the miracles. When, when his um, followers were amazed at some miraculous thing that he did, he told them, you guys are going to do even greater things than this. He was talking about the way human communities will join together to heal people, to restore peace, to restore the broken people to full participation in a life of shalom. I mean, Jesus could heal a person with a fever, but he's limited to one time and one place. Antibiotics can be anywhere, right? That, that's, antibiotics are a miracle they ended the plagues. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he said, you're going to do even greater things than this. Humans have this God-given capacity to be healers, to leverage our minds and all our faculties and resources to chase this vision of shalom together. And there's a sense in which God enters in in Christ to symbolically show, you know, this is what's possible and then the rest of the times, God is like, you do it. You have to do it. Um, God wants to fix the world, but not for us. God wants to fix the world, mend the world. In, in Hebrew, it's tikkun olam, to mend the world through us and with us. Even allowing us to have a say in what the future of the world looks like. Now, there are times it'll be necessary to banish people to the edges. You know, if, if, if you go on a murder spree, you're going to go to prison. But Jesus, even in that situation, he doesn't write some complex moral codes or a massive list of, like, moral principles or ethical guidelines, right? One time um, he was teaching his disciples, and he said this, and I mean, this is as radical as it gets. He said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Binding and loosing was about which behaviors were permissible and impermissible. He's talking about right and wrong. What you see as moral or immoral, ethical or unethical. 
what's morally okay and morally wrong. He, he refused to dictate those things for us. He's like, you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to learn how to do some moral reflection and, and compromise. In the Gospel of John, he, um, after the resurrection, he appeared to his guys and breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the whole thing is supposed to happen in the power of the Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive anyone, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are forgiven. He's, he's going, I'm, I'm not going to overfunction for you. You need to grow up and, and learn to mend the world um, and decide as a group what's right and wrong. Do moral, ethical reflection. I'm not even dictating moral laws through fiat. You got to work together. Find your way to wisdom. You're going to have to compromise. It's going to make you really mad sometimes, you know. But your culture is going to change and grow down through the years, and you're going to have to answer new questions. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible about how to steward one of these babies, right? That's going to take, we're going to have to do this together, figure it out. And, and the issues will become more confusing. And so Jesus is, is teaching that, like, these, um, these miracles inform this process, and, and the guiding principle sort of embedded within them is that we're supposed to seek peace for everyone, but not by disavowing and punishing, but rather by moving close and peacemaking. To find ways to embody shalom that will, that will include all the strugglers, because we're all strugglers. And, and, and you'll do this by healing not banishing, healing broken things, and casting out these spirits of the age. That's, that's a, a big part of this. You know, at the end of the passage, he says, it, it says, he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. This word demons, you know, it's, it's problematic for us in English because, um, well, because of Dante's Inferno, for one thing, but also because of the exorcist movie and that kind of stuff, right? It, this, but this word in Greek, it's daimon. And it doesn't mean devils, demons, like they possess people. Um, it's, it's like nobody in Capernaum's head was spinning around, like on the exorcist thing and the room getting cold and stuff like that, levitating. The major difference really is in Greek, this word daimon, it lacks the connotation of subjectivity of like it being a person like that with freedom it's it's not an agent right it's not a personification they had words for that in aramaic there's shadim or shadaya in hebrew there's diabolos or hasatan those are like personal things subjects and in greek or latin they had um, the word genius it was like a, a guardian angel or the better angels of our nature or numen the, the will of the gods daimon is different. It's kind of a guiding spirit, but not personal. It's like the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. Daimon was a, a temperament or mentality that could possess people, and for them, it could be for ill or for good. These weren't like evil spirits. It, it could be a daimon of a, that's embodied in a specific person, or a daimon of, of the age, or a whole culture. In, in our day, we might use the word ideology. It's very close to the, the same idea. Anybody know somebody who's possessed by an ideology? 
I don't mean me, right? <laughs> Jesus seems to want us to participate in naming those things and kind of casting them out when they don't fit with God's vision of shalom. It's interesting, in the early church, um, to, to be baptized, you had to go through catechism for like two, three years. It was a long process. And it had many steps. And the final step was called exorcism where they cast out the daimon. But again, it wasn't the exorcist movie. Um, What they did is you would sit with kind of your spiritual leader and they would name the spirits that still seem to possess you. They would be like, look, you still, you have live with so much fear. You have not dealt with that daimon yet. That spirit dictates your life. You live with the spirit of anxiety. You're a child of God. You can be free from that spirit. This is, this is what they were doing. That was their exorcism, right? I'm like, can I get me an exorcism? This is, this is what they, it was normative for them. And, and this is what Christians did throughout history for whatever community they lived in. They would name the diamonds that possessed that age, that society. They would cast them out and then they would work to embody shalom. And so this is what they did. I mean, this is why Christians were on the leading edge. Of things. I mean, they built hospitals everywhere they went. They trained doctors and nurses. That's what Christians did. They did research to cure diseases. They healed the sick. They tried to help people find peace in their bodies. They built schools and trained teachers so through education people could find a better life. They worked for justice for those who were abused by the system. They worked for peace so we don't, you know, destroy each other in the world. It was Christians who were at the forefront of massive social changes like public education, public libraries, public museums, public parks and transportation, public utilities, phone, telegraph, that kind of stuff. Parcel posts, you don't think about how important that is. That allowed the poor, when cheap parcel posts came to be through the post office, it let the poor share resources. They could send stuff to their cousins, they could send medicine and stuff. It was a huge leg up. Um, Municipal housing, child labor laws, workplace safety regulations, organized labor, because it's not good when the corporations have all the power, regulation of monopolies, so things, markets were fair, Um, things like water, gas, electricity should be held in public trust so everyone has access, things like social security, inheritance taxes, so people, you know, wealth didn't just concentrate in the hands of a few. These aren't like liberal or conservative Um, social programs, these things were instituted by Christians who said, this is what a peaceful world looks like. This is shalom. We take care of each other. This is a faithful way to organize our common life. We got to assist those who struggle, who live on the margins. Give them just a little help, a little more access to the peace that lives at the heart of the community so everyone can know peace. And Christians are still at it. I mean, our little ragamuffin church, um, we've spent, a lot of folks in our church have spent the last three years building this thing called the Good Faith Network. It's like 30-some congregations um, who come together to work on, right now, three issues, homelessness, mental health, and affordable housing. And in just those short years, listen to what we've done. We, we talked the county into hiring a housing director 
specifically to work on homelessness full-time at the director level. We, we talked into setting aside $6.5 million to buy a permanent shelter for homeless folks in Johnson County. We secured funding for a seven-member homeless outreach team. So pretty soon, it's about a couple months away, we'll start hiring seven people for this team, and all they're going to do is spend their time on the streets, outreach to homeless, and then trying to get them into permanent housing. We secured um, a, a commitment to for the county to open a crisis stabilization center for people in the midst of the mental health crisis. There are going to be 20 new beds, um, 10 of them for juveniles in Johnson County, where people in the midst of a mental health crisis don't have to go to the jails. They can go sort it out with, with professionals. Um, we're making tons of progress on an affordable housing trust fund, a way to help people finance homes so they can, especially those who are, are poor in Johnson County, can have a leg up and live and work and worship in our community. I mean, we're nobody, you guys. We're just some dinky little church that people drive by going, what is that? You know? And we've done all this just because we banded together with other folks seeking shalom seeking peace for our city. And it all goes back to just little stories like this in Mark, where Jesus charges his followers to seek peace, to cast out the, the diamond, the spirits, the ideologies that rule us, to embody shalom in their midst, and then invite all the ragamuffins into it, and then to, to image God to the rest of the world so that when they take a look, really look and see us, they want to be part of it. We are a people who we don't draw the source of our life from the spirit of the age, from the ideologies, diamonds of our age that possess our culture. We draw our life from the spirit of Christ that we see at the center of the story in Mark and that Jesus taught and embodied in these powerful symbolic actions. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story in Mark. And um, for also just, we're grateful to be part of this old, old tradition, Christian tradition. Faithful people who have just down through the years sacrificed to try to embody your peace, your shalom in the world. And I pray that for all of us, that you would just keep challenging us, keep naming the spirits that possess us and casting them out. And that you would give us energy and purpose as we pursue peace in our neighborhoods, our families, at our workplaces, and in this city that we love. I pray, God, that you would make Redemption Church and all these friends make us an instrument of your peace. Amen. We stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion, if you're new, is we just are released row by row. You come forward, you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. As you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. 
and you can say, I will remember, or however you, you can respond, however you feel comfortable. The reason we do that is because on Christ's last night with his, his disciples, they did this. They shared in a common um, cup and loaf of bread, and he said, he was, it was a Jewish ritual, and he kind of redefined that because he was always redefining things. And he said, every time you gather after I'm gone, I want you to share this common meal and, and, and remember me. The, the bread is like my body. The cup is like my life, my blood. And I want you to receive it into your body and, and receive me. Like, be made of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go be my hands and feet in the world. It's just everything this story is talking about. And so that's why we receive communion. It's just a symbolic thing that we do where we're like, okay, this is it. This is who we are. This is what we're up to. And it's also why we, we don't put limits on who can participate. Like anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. Um, but first, let's pray a blessing. God, we do ask you to bless this bread and cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen.